0: I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Psalm 99, Psalm 99. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 500, page 500. Uh, As you're turning there, I just want to say a word of thanks. Uh, Some of you know that this last week our second son, Isaiah, had an accident at school and uh, he had a concussion Uh, He was taken to the emergency room on Thursday and then we were in the hospital uh, Thursday night and there all day Friday, came home kind of late Friday evening. And so uh, we're very concerned about him, uh, but he's doing well now. We're very grateful for that. He's at home and uh, resting. And I know that uh, many of you offered prayers on our behalf, uh, sent text, gift cards uh, for us to get meals. And so I'm uh, just very grateful for your love and support and really thankful that Isaiah is doing well. So thank you very much. Uh, we're very grateful uh, for you and for your, your support. Well, this morning we are going to continue our series in the Psalms and uh, we're going to look at Psalm 99. And so I'm going to read the Psalm in its entirety and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer and consider God's word together. So This is God's Word, Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The King in His might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Moses and Aaron were among His priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon His name. They called to the Lord and He answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, He spoke to them. They kept His testimonies and the statute that He gave them. O Lord our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is by Your Word that You create Your people, that You sustain them, that You sanctify and purify them. And so, Father, we pray that as we turn to Your Word now, You would give life. Lord, we pray that You would change and transform. We pray that You would purify and sanctify. We pray, Father, that by the power of Your Word, we would know You and we would truly worship You. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Well, last week we looked at Psalm 98, a psalm that calls us repeatedly to loudly and even boisterously make music and sing to the Lord. It is a psalm that is full of joy and full of life. And Psalm 99 continues this call to praise and to exalt and to worship the Lord. But Psalm 99 especially emphasizes the holiness of God. And reminds us of the solemnity and the reverence with which we are to worship Him. You may have noticed this as we, was, we were reading through the psalm, but the psalm divides nicely into three stanzas. And each stanza concludes with this refrain that stresses the holiness of God. So the first stanza ends in verse 3 with this refrain, Let them praise Your great and awesome name, Holy is He. And then verse 5 concludes the second stanza. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. And then the third stanza concludes in verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. So there you see it. Holy, holy, holy. There are a few other times in Scripture where we encounter a similar pattern, a similar emphasis upon the holiness of God. We read it this morning in Isaiah chapter 6, when King Uzziah dies, and the prophet sees a vision of the Lord in the temple. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord And again, in Revelation chapter 4, as we come to the last book of the canon of the Bible, the Apostle John is given a vision of the heavenly throne room of God. And in Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, John records And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings or full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. You know, when we are writing something and we want to emphasize something, we might underline it. Or we might italicize it. Or we might put it in all caps or in bold. And if it's a more formal presentation and needs to comport with a more traditional style of writing and the rules of English grammar, then we'll use an exclamation point. But you see, there were no exclamation points in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the conventional method... For emphasizing a particular word or idea was repetition. And therefore we read, holy, holy, holy. In other words, you might italicize it. You might underline it. You might put it in bold. You might put it in all caps. God is holy. We should not be surprised by this emphasis given that the biblical authors use the word holy to describe God more than any other word. So no other word in the Bible is used more often to describe God than the word holy. It's used more than just, or righteous, or powerful, or mighty, or love, or grace, or mercy. In fact, it is the only word that is used with this thrice-repeated pattern to describe God. Never do we read that God is love, love, love. Never do we read that God is just, just, just. It's not that those things are not true, but those things are never quite articulated and emphasized in the same way. But several times in the Scriptures we read that God is holy, holy, holy. And so of course this leads to the question what is the holiness of God? What does it mean that God is holy? Sometimes we make the mistake of assuming that God's holiness is his mere moral purity or his righteous perfection. And God's holiness does include His moral purity and His righteousness perfection, but it is so much more than that. You see, to be holy is to be set apart. The holiness of God refers to the fact that God is set apart, that He is transcendent, that He is above and beyond all of His creation, that He is in a class all of His own. So you see, the holiness of God in this way is not merely an attribute of God, like His purity, or His righteousness, or His justice, or His mercy, or His love. Rather, holiness describes His nature and is therefore true of all His attributes. God is holy in His purity. He is holy in His righteousness. He is holy in His justice. He is holy in His mercy. He is holy in His love. That means in all of these ways, He is set apart. He is in a category all His own. He is in a class all of His own. He is above and beyond all that He has made and all that He sustains. In this way, His holiness is His Godness. His holiness defines what it is for Him to be God. Even as we read in Psalm 135, He is God above all other gods. That's the idea of holiness. He is in a class of His own. In all His attributes. And in all His characteristics. And Psalm 99 is a call for us to worship God in His holiness. Derek Kidner, one Old Testament scholar, writes, quote, After the carefree delight of Psalm 98, we recollect how exalted and holy He is, and how profound is the reverence we owe Him." End of quote. I want us to look this morning at our psalm in three parts. We'll follow the outline of the psalm as we see these three stanzas. First, we'll consider, praise the Lord for His holy reign. Secondly, exalt and worship the Lord for His holy justice. And then third, exalt and worship the Lord for His holy nearness. So praise the Lord for His holy reign. Exalt and worship the Lord for His holy justice. And exalt and worship the Lord for His holy nearness. Look there in verses 1-3. through Praise the Lord for His holy reign. We read, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. Now immediately we're reminded here that Psalm 99 falls within the kingship psalms. Which include Psalm 93 through Psalm 100. All of these psalms include this theme that God is king. You see it there in verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is a king. Let the peoples of the earth tremble. He sits enthroned. That's the language of a king. Upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. And notice in verse 1 here that we have parallel statements. So first we read, the Lord reigns. And that statement is mirrored in the next sentence. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. So He reigns. And the parallel statement, He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. And then notice the parallel responses, let the peoples tremble, and it's parallel in the second statement, let the earth quake. So what is the proper response to God's holy reign? It is for the peoples to tremble and for the earth to quake. We see a similar response in other passages that highlight the holiness of God. We mentioned Isaiah 6 earlier in Revelation chapter 4. In Isaiah chapter 6, when the seraphim declare, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah confesses in the following verses, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In other words, when Isaiah saw this vision of the Lord in the temple, and the angels were declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The temple itself quaked. The temple itself shook. And Isaiah trembled before the Lord as he declared, Woe is me. Or in Revelation chapter 4, after John records that the living creatures never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, we read in the very next verses, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. In other words, they tremble before the holiness of God, they humble themselves before this holy God and they cast their crowns before him in worship. And so, the proper response to God's holy reign is to tremble, is to quake before the holy king. One commentator says of this first stanza here in Psalm 98 or Psalm 99 that God's awful holiness forms the subject of our praise what a great phrase his awful holiness often we don't know what to do with God's holiness on the one hand we are drawn to it we are attracted to it we are in awe and amazement of it and yet on the other hand it terrifies us because we know that we ourselves are not holy but this is in fact what we are created for We are created to marvel, and to wonder, and to be at all at that which is greater than ourselves, which is superior to us, which is beyond us. Which is gloriously other than us. And that, in fact, is part of the glory. That, in fact, is part of the wonder and the joy, is the fear and the terror of it all. That He is God, and we are not. That He is holy, and we are finite and fallen. Notice the psalmist goes on in verse 2 to declare the Lord is great in Zion. And you see there in your Bible that Lord is in all caps, which represents the personal covenantal name of the God of Israel. It is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And He is great, the psalmist says, in Zion, that is in Jerusalem, the holy city where God's temple dwelt and where God promised to especially be with His people. And notice then in verse 2 as well that the king's holy reign is not limited to Jerusalem. But the psalmist writes, he is exalted over all the people. So he reigns in Jerusalem, but his reign extends over all the peoples and all the nations. So what the psalmist is declaring here is that God's reign is a holy reign. In other words, it is unlike any other reign. For what king can say that he rules and reigns over all the earth, over all the peoples? Only the Lord God of Israel. And therefore, having given us the reason, the ground for which we should praise Him, now the psalmist actually issues the call to praise in verse 3. Let them, that is the peoples, the nations, let them praise your great and awesome name. And what is His great name? It is the name Yahweh. Holy is He. God is altogether set apart. He is distinct. He is other in His kingly rule and reign. Secondly, we see here the second point of our text and second stanza is exalt and worship the Lord for His holy justice. Exalt and worship the Lord for His holy justice. Look there in verses 4 and 5, we read these words. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have ex- executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Now in the original language here, cha- uh, Verse 4 literally reads, so the ESV translates it, the king in his might loves justice, but the verse literally reads, the might of the king loves justice. In fact, in my copy of the ESV translation, which I'm reading from this morning, it has a little footnote there, and if you look down at the bottom of the page, it notes, or, This could be translated, the might of the king loves justice, which is a more literal translation and puts the emphasis a little bit in a different place. But the idea here is not that might makes right. Have you ever heard that phrase before, might makes right? This is the idea that the actions of the most powerful, the most mighty are necessarily right because no one possesses the power to challenge or overturn them. That's a horrible world to live in. Unfortunately, many people live under such circumstances in various places where dictators rule and reign. And they determine by their might what is right. It's a horrible world to live in when might and power determine morality. And the danger is that those who hold the most power, who possess the most might, will be blinded to what is good and refuse to do what is right. The 19th century British politician Lord Acton famously declared, quote, "...power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely." End of quote. But what the psalmist is saying here is that that is not true of the heavenly king. He possesses absolute power, absolute might... But his absolute power and might has not corrupted him. Rather, his absolute power and might loves what is just, loves what is right, loves what is good. And we should not take God's holy justice for granted. This was not true of the Old Testament pagan gods or the pagan gods in the New Testament. They reveled in what was evil and petty and sinister. In fact, Charles Spurgeon points out, the Baptist minister, quote: "...the gods of the heathens were, according to their own votaries, that is, their own devoted followers, lustful, cruel, and brutish. Their only claim to reverence lay in their supposed potency or power over human destinies. Who would not far rather adore Jehovah, that is, Yahweh?" Whose character is unsullied purity, unswerving justice, unbending truth, unbounded love, in a word, perfect in holiness. End of quote. So the Lord is unique. He is other than in His justice. And therefore the psalmist declares, as you see there in the text in verse 4, that God has established equity and has executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Jacob is another way to refer to Israel. And God has done this. He has executed justice and righteousness. He has established equity by giving His laws and His commandments to the nation of Israel. And through His personal dealings with them as He rewarded them for their obedience and as He punished them for their rebellion. And so once again, the psalmist here, having given a ground, a reason for why we should worship the Lord, now the psalmist issues the call to exalt and worship Him in verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. In other words, God is set apart. He is distinct. He is altogether unique in His justice and in His righteousness. This leads us to the third stanza of our psalm. We've seen, praise the Lord for His holy reign. Secondly, exalt and worship the Lord for His holy justice. And finally, in verses 6-9, through exalt and worship the Lord for His holy nearness. Look there in verse 6. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, Samuel also among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and He answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, He spoke to them. They kept His testimonies and the statute that He gave them. O Lord our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Now I entitled this section, Exalt and Worship the Lord for His Holy Nearness. And that phrase "their Holy Nearness, might seem to be an oxymoron. An oxymoron is when you have two apparently contradictory uh, ideas side by side. His holy nearness. You see, holy means separate, transcendent, other, set apart. Nearness means close, present. So in what way is God holy in His nearness? Well, God is holy in His nearness in that no other God is like the God of the Bible in His nearness, in His closeness, in His immediate presence with His people. God is in an altogether unique and distinct category when it comes to His nearness and presence with His own. And the psalmist illustrates this truth in these verses here by appealing to Moses and to Aaron and to Samuel. God used each of these men to establish justice and righteousness in Israel. So for example, it was through Moses that God gave the people of Israel His law, in particular the Ten Commandments. By extension, it was through Aaron, the high priest, that so many of these commandments were worked out in the people's worship of God. And years later, the same can be said of Samuel, who was a prophet and a priest. So for example, when the people sinfully rejected God as their king and insisted that they have a God like the nations, Samuel declared to the people, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord and rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see the great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that He may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord set thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And so God established justice, He established righteousness in Israel through these men, through Moses, through Aaron, and through Samuel. Samuel. But then each of these men as well as we examine their lives, each of these men teach us something about how we are to relate to a God who is holy. They teach us this both by being examples or models for us and by being intercessors. First, they're examples, they're models for us. Notice here in our text in Psalm 99 how the psalmist tells us that these men related to God. The psalmist tells us that they obeyed God's commandments. Do you see it there in verse 7? In the pillar of the cloud, He spoke to them. They kept His testimonies and the statute that He gave them. So they obeyed God's commandments. Not only that, they cried out to God in prayer. Notice there in verse 6. We read that they called upon His name. They called to the Lord and He answered them. So these men called to the Lord in prayer and they experienced God's answer. Notice as well in verse 8 that they experienced God's forgiveness and His discipline. In verse 8 we read, O Lord our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. So these men like us, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, like us, were not perfect men. They sinned against the Lord in various ways. You might remember that Moses struck the rock in anger. Or Aaron participated in the people's sin of erecting and worshiping a golden calf. Or Samuel, the prophet, he failed to rebuke his sons, although he knew that his sons were abusing their spiritual positions of authority and taking advantage of the people. And each of these men in their sin experienced both God's grace and forgiveness on the one hand and his displeasure and discipline on the other. In fact, the words here in verse 8, O Lord our God, you answered them, you were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings, is intended to call to mind God's revelation of himself to Moses in Exodus 34. It's one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament. When God says to Moses, I will reveal Myself to you. And He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and He passes over him and the Lord declares, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And here we see that this verse here, this text, verse 8 in Psalm 99, is an affirmation that God has related to Moses and to Aaron and to Samuel in a way that is consistent with His character, consistent with who He said He was. He has forgiven them and shown them mercy, and He has disciplined them in their sin. Many of us who have walked with the Lord know this experience. God has been so gracious and kind in our own lives to forgive us of our sins. And yet, the consequences of our sins can both be bitter and painful. But here's the good news as one commentator states it. Quote, the God of the Bible is merciful. Those who submit to His reign yet fail to achieve sinless perfection will find Him forgiving to those who repent and trust in Him." End of quote. So how are we to relate to this holy God? Here, Moses and Aaron and Samuel provide us with an example, a model to follow. They obeyed His commandments and we are to as well. Like them, we are to cry out to God in prayer. And in so doing, we can be confident that He will answer us. And like them, we too are sinners, but through confession and repentance, we can know God's gracious forgiveness and his corrective discipline. So these men set an example, a model for us in terms of how we are to relate to a holy God. But not only that, these men were all intercessors, they were mediators. And this is perhaps more than any other characteristic what ties these men together. What serves as the common unifying theme among these group of men. Each of them were intercessors for the people of God. Think about this. When the people of God rebelled against God in the wilderness, Moses cried out to God on behalf of the people that God would have mercy on them. And that he would continue to be with them by his presence. And God heard the cries of Moses. And he continued to go with his people. Or every year, Aaron the high priest. He would enter into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And he would offer a blood sacrifice on behalf of the people. To atone for the sins of the people. And as a result of that sacrifice, God received the atonement, and He extended His mercy to His people. Or before the armies of Israel would go out into battle and go out into the war, Samuel would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people and he would cry out to God and the Lord heard Samuel and He would defend and protect the armies of God. You see, each of these men, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, served as intercessors, mediators between God and and man between God who is holy and his people who are finite and sinful and in this way each of these men teach us something vital about how we are to relate to a holy God each of these men point to the reality that we all of us need a mediator we need a intercessor we need a go between between us and God. Each of these men in this way point to the greater intercessor, the better mediator, the final go-between between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul speaks of him in this way in First Timothy chapter 2 verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Or in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is also interceding for us? You see, Moses and Aaron and Samuel, they were partial, temporary mediators. But Christ is our ultimate and eternal mediator who offered the perfect sacrifice for our sins by His atoning death on the cross and lives by His glorious resurrection to intercede for us before the throne of God. And so through faith in Jesus, God who is holy, who is other, who is distinct, who is unique, who is transcendent, comes near to us. And He is present with us. So much so that the author of Hebrews can dare to proclaim that we can enter into the very presence of God with confidence and with boldness. So what God is like the God of the Bible? In His nearness, in His closeness, in His immediate presence with His people. No one. God is altogether unique. He is altogether distinct. He is altogether separate when it comes to His nearness and His presence with His people. And notice once again, having provided the reason, the ground for us to worship. Now in verse 9, the psalmist issues the call for us to exalt and worship the Lord. Look there in verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. And did you notice, and we're going to close with this, did you notice that now in this third refrain there is a slight difference in the wording? In verse 3, holy is He. In verse 5, holy is he and now in verse 9 the lord our god is holy do you notice the wording's a little bit different in fact in the hebrew the exact word order is for holy is the lord our god so not only is he holy not only is he set apart distinct unique transcendent separate he is Our God. In fact, the word order in the Hebrew leaves us with this particular emphasis, with this thrilling conclusion. The last two words in the Hebrew text is our God. For holy is the Lord, our God. He is near. He is present to us. He who is so distinct from us has now chosen to be identified with us and has come near to us. And therefore we can do nothing less than exalt and worship Him. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain for holy is the Lord our God. Let's pray. Father, we pause and we quiet ourselves before You because we recognize in these moments that You are holy, holy, holy. We worship You and praise You because You are not like us. You are unique and distinct in all Your glory and perfections. And You are not like any other God. You are distinct and above all other gods. You are the one true and living God in a class all Your own. And we confess that You are holy. Lord, we pray that our Worship and our reverence in our lives would be marked by this reality. That we would live before you as though you are holy. And that we would, be, we would marvel and take great joy and delight in your perfections and unique glory. And Father, as a result, we pray that we would be a holy people. And we pray that our worship would be characterized by reverence, by awe. We do praise you this morning. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it.